Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, adventurers, travelers, investors, entrepreneurs, and simply mind bogglers. Find all episodes of this show. Simply go to Spotify, iTunes, or YouTube, or go to our website, judgmentcallpodcast.com. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the airfare deals that you really want. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% in the airfare. Those include $150 round-trip tickets to Hawaii for many cities in the US, or $600 life-led tickets in business class from the US to Asia, or $100 business class life-led tickets from Africa round-trip all the way to Asia. In case you didn't know, about half the world is open for business again and accepts travelers. Most of those countries are in South America, Africa, and Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP, or if that's too many letters for you, simply go to MTP, the number four, and the letter U.com to sign up for your 30-day free trial. Important, uh, important points. Uh, I am not at all in the camp of the uh, neo-Luddites or the uh, the, the people who are who are really concerned that technology is depriving us of, of our humanity. Uh, quite the contrary, I think that technology really reveals a lot about our our humanity. Reveals things that we didn't realize. Sometimes reveals unpleasant things about ourselves. For example, social media. How they uh, they highlight bullying. How they highlight uh, extremism. And the reason is that the people who run the sites have discovered that anger is the most powerful way to get people to pay more attention to the site and to, uh, to, to, uh, to sell that, that lets them sell more advertising. And so you have a, you have a bias toward a real but uh, un- and, and unpleasant but partial sides of, of humanity. It's the technology that brings them out, but the technology didn't create them. The technology didn't create bullying. The technology didn't uh, didn't uh, didn't create hatred, but it does seem to mobilize people that way. And I I uh, I have a phrase that I haven't yet used in print, so I'll I'll introduce it here. Uh, we were expecting the information age, but instead we have the inflammation age. Uh, <laughs> we have uh, uh, because 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 en- enragement enragement creates engagement. Uh, that could be that could be the motto of social media. Yeah, I like this uh, line. Get, get uh, people get people get Zuckerberg. people angry. Get people get people uh, arguing with each other. Uh, get people to join in the the you know the the hatred of of of, of, of comments. And it doesn't matter what the content is. Your, your people will just will just jump in and they'll denounce each other. And and meanwhile, you're sitting back and counting the money as they fight among each other. Uh, there's a friend of mine who published a paper recently in a computing and law journal about the status of the social media contracts under 
Anglo-American common law. And he believes that they're unconscionable, that they're void. And uh, this has not yet, by the way, been uh, contested in a court. So somebody could bring a suit and say that the end user agreement of Facebook or, or whatever is is unconscionable. Now, I have no idea of what judges would say about that, but my friend is a retired partner in one of the largest law firms in the world. He is a uh, visiting uh, professor at the University of Chicago. He lectures to uh, students in China. So he's not a marginal figure in the uh, in the legal world. And I don't really agree with him on the unconscionability part, but I think that he's been really uh, tremendously devoted to that. And I give him I give him credit for that. So we'll see whether any influential journalist picks up on that. And uh, his name is Preston Torbert, by the way. So so anybody who is interested can just Google his name, T-O-R-B-E-R-T. And it was published in uh, the a, a journal, uh, I forget the exact name, but a journal of of uh, technology and, and, and law. Um, my view is that uh, technology really freed me to pursue my writing. Uh, technology uh, in the form of word processing and in the form of databases was what really gave me a second life as a writer and scholar. Uh, I was always somebody who revised a lot. I remember in college, I would make one draft after another. I would type it on the typewriter. I would read it and I would say, no, this isn't right. So I would type the whole paper again. And for someone who works like that, even the simplest word processing program running on a TRS-80 was a revelation. And while holding down a demanding job as a science acquisition editor, one of the most competitive jobs in publishing, I was able in my own time to uh, resume the kind of writing that I had done as an, as an undergraduate and to publish my first book. And ultimately the writing took over from the editing and I had done what I had set out to do publishing other people's work. And now it was time for me to pay attention to my own. And all of that was really made possible by the early uh, availability of databases like Nexus Lexus uh, at Princeton University uh, and others. So I could look through uh, historical newspapers. I could look through the back issues of magazines, a lot of things that, that had taken much more time in printed reference books could now be done almost instantaneously. And I have been working on that ever since and developing new techniques for mining the uh, the the human record as, as recorded in these databases. Yeah, I was really excited to have you on, Edward. You are such a intricate student of history and the history of technology. And the, uh, you're a master by now. You're not a student anymore. But I think we are all students going through life. And you have really become famous for figuring out, and you mentioned some already, these hidden consequences of technology. So we, we start a technology, we don't know what we take out of this urn, so to speak, right? It's a new innovation. We don't know what it actually does, what it will do to us. 
we introduce, introduce us and we often have the best intentions. We want to make money from it. Do we want to build an ecosystem around us? And I think a lot of entrepreneurs think they make the world a better place. And often it does. But sometimes we, in the process, change things that we didn't expect. And I, I love how you made the example with Facebook. You know, we can have ascribe bad intentions to Facebook, but how I experienced the industry here in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s and after, Facebook was just a company who wanted attention, right? So they wanted to, to have other people use their product. And the way they designed this engagement algorithm was, was the only thing they could measure. They could only me measure certain clicks or certain how long you look at something. Mm -hmm. And these basic limbic brain emotions turned out to be the things they could measure. The, the more difficult ones, if we like something, if it's scientific, that the, the engagement algorithm could track us. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly in 2014, 2015, we all became, I don't know, sucked into this algorithm. We all just became slaves to it and the whole world mm -hmm. changed and we turned against each other. And I think that's mm -hmm. still going on, right? And I don't think it was ever Facebook's goal. No, it wasn't, it wasn't. And I don't think they're probably very comfortable about it, but it's very difficult for them to to change now because there isn't any alternative model that would let them make as much money or nearly as much money uh, doing things on on the on the positive side. Another really interesting unintended consequence, though, was Google, uh, and the Google algorithm was um, was is one of the most fascinating things that I've I've studied because it really started out not as a commercial project, but as a theoretical academic uh, uh, curiosity, a, a patented one, of course. And the, uh, the founders of Google actually, at one point, offered to sell the company to Yahoo for a million dollars. And even in uh, 2002, I was at a scenario planning workshop for the Library of Congress at the Claremont Resort in Oakland. And there were all kinds of uh, people from uh, industries. The, the uh, technology vice president of Sony, for example, was there. Uh, Stuart Brand uh, from uh, the, the Whole Earth Catalog is one of the people conducting this. And one of the fascinating things looking back is how people saw that Google was providing a really valuable service, but they didn't see how it would ever be sustainable. And at one point, a participant, when we were talking about possible scenarios, one participant said, well, maybe, maybe the government will, uh, will, have to, will have to take over Google. And, and now it, it's more likely the other way around, but that was the, the, uh, that was the sentiment in, yeah. uh, in, in, in 2002. And so the the way in which that that mutated and, and Google became something very different, the greatest advertising agency in history, uh, you know that that was something that nobody uh, inside or outside the industry was forecasting in 2002. Yeah. And even in 2005, uh, when I started to write a column for the Technology Review, which had just been uh, taken over by Jason Ponton as, as editor. Uh, the, the cover of that relaunch issue was 
Google, and then there, there was a there was a kind of a graphic play on words like God, but but for how long? In other words, Google was making this splash with their IPO, but it was still not clear whether they would really become uh, a, uh, a you know a giant a giant company uh, or stay a giant company. And one of the things that I like about technology actually is how, how unpredictable it is because sometimes a lot of the, sometimes the, the unpredictable things are among the most positive ones. Sometimes uh, the discoveries that take place as a result of uh, disasters even uh, show us the way to improvements and we might not have taken those paths if there hadn't been some failures. So I am not a partisan of the precautionary principle because the precautionary principle, if you really apply it rigorously, would uh, condemn us to uh, a lot of the unintended consequences that, that already exist and keep us from exploring, exploring new things. I think the secret, and one of the things that is, is a theme in my work is that that instead of trying to eliminate all negative unintended consequences, the real challenge is to, to limit them, to, uh, to experiment, but to know when to quit, not to do things in a way that will be irreversible. And a lot of the worst things are actually those that, that run away before people realize what was happening. For example, uh, many of these invasive species that I wrote about and why things bite back were, were originally introduced by experts. But the experts, instead of being cautious about them, uh, oversold them and they treated them as miracle organisms that would create uh, incredible industries. And, and then when, uh, when they ran wild, uh, they, uh, they said, well, we couldn't have foreseen this. And in a way they couldn't, but they could also have acted initially with much more caution. Yeah, it seems technology and the way it interacts with us, there's just too many variables to really usefully predict it. And, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of venture capitalists. They, that's basically all they do is predict the future and bet on it. And it seems in, incredibly hard to get all these variables under control. Like even if the technology comes out and works, and is working exactly like we predicted a couple of years earlier, it seems like the technology adoption is a big question. And then on the other hand also, will it ever be cheap enough? And I remember that example with the steam engine. I don't know if you, you, you probably looked at this, how long it was around and nobody really was too interested in it until someone, and I think it was James Watts, but correct me if that's wrong, he made it so easy to use that it becomes something you can apply to lots of different functions. But the steam engine maybe could have been invented by the Romans, but maybe they would have never had a real use case for it. Uh, there is a paper that I cite in uh, our own devices. Uh, it was it was written by a British classicist named Horsfall, H-O-R-S-F-A-L-L, -L, and it's called Rome Without Spectacles. And it was about why the Romans, who had the uh, optical technology and science and uh, skill with glass, to create eyeglasses, never, never made eyeglasses. And the reason that he gave was, was not a technological, but a social one, that wealthy Romans had slaves to read to them. There were literate Greek slaves 
who would um, you know who, who served as secretaries and and who could uh, who could uh, just uh, 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 recite books when when uh, their their masters were were no longer uh, were no longer able to read them and this was true of of a lot of other uh, Roman technologies uh, for example the Romans had a wonderful skill in casting bronze letters. And they also had extremely effective uh, presses that they used for uh, processing cloth. Uh, one of them is very well preserved in, in Herculaneum, the, the great archeological site. Uh, but they never invented printing. They, the Romans could have invented printing from movable type. And the reason for that, again, was in the nature of Roman society. Uh, to be a literate Roman meant to read elegantly from scrolls. And, and part of your prestige as a literate Roman was to be able to get up before your guests and, uh, and read poetry and, and manipulate the scrolls with skill. So... This was a uh, this was a uh, this was as much a, a feature as as a bug at the time. It was the literacy was something that was really uh, part of the the an elite skill set. And one of the contributions of of Christianity was uh, democratizing reading. And it was actually Ethiopian Christians who introduced the codex, the, the book, the common book that, that nearly everybody has now. And there are only uh, you know, a few faiths, uh, Judaism and, and some others that, that preserve their scriptures in, in, in scrolls. But the, uh, the, the idea behind the codex was that it was, it was relatively cheap and compact. It was easy to, to, uh, to store. And it became a tremendous success. The Romans also, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the Christian, uh, the monasteries in the Middle Ages also introduced the idea of space between words. In antiquity, in Greece and Rome, there were no spaces between words. You were supposed to be able, again, reading from a scroll, you were supposed to be able to break down the words uh, fluently, that was part of your skill as a literate person. But in the early Christian world, it was important to educate uh, young uh, men for the priesthood and and other clerical responsibilities. So you needed you needed a kind of writing that was easier for beginners. And this was the origin of books as we know them. This but is so was, fascinating. It was a social I'm, innovation. It was it was yeah. like it was a social innovation. So a lot of what we think of as purely technological really turns out to be social. Let me give you another example. Yeah. Um, I'm often disturbed by people following following me too close on the road. The technology exists so that nearly every car could be equipped with a signal that you're following too close, and it might even be equipped with a chip that would prevent you from following too close. This would be an easy thing. But people have an idea of their autonomy on the road, and they don't like their their freedom to tailgate and be involved in accidents to be limited. Uh, so 
many things that would be beneficial and actually minimally invasive and annoying. It wouldn't have to be a buzzer. It could just be a light that, that came on on your dashboard. Many things that, that would be very simple to introduce uh, are not used. And on the other hand, there are, there are all kinds of really, really complicated things of doubtful use that are there because people in marketing believe that these will be selling points for the cars, even though in use, uh, the actual uh, uh, benefits will, will be doubtful. I saw that myself when I bought a, uh, a home theater uh, AV receiver. I had been looking for this for, for quite a while. I, my old television, which was 20 years old, the CRT had failed, and I bought a new uh, 4K 4K television, and I was looking for something to uh, to power it with center channel and all of that. So I bought, I paid more than I had expected to, but I thought at least I'm going to have a state-of-the-art units. And it had Dolby this and Dolby that. It supported speakers not only on the sides, but in the ceiling uh, behind you. Uh, and it had, uh, it had Netflix, it had it had uh, a half dozen other streaming services. The only thing it couldn't do was to pair with my television set. Uh, and I spent uh, hours on the phone with the, uh, the, the retailer, with the uh, manufacturer of the television. I wasn't able to reach the manufacturer of the receiver and I, I had to send it back. So the, the priorities very often uh, in industry is in proliferating features that people use to sell these and people think, well, the more features it has, the better it is. And yet they can also, they can thereby skimp on things that are much more basic and important. Yeah, it seems there is this one time stream of technological progress that's mostly in engineering science progress. And then we have this whole different time stream that is sociological, where we see the readiness to adopt new technology, take advantage of it, or maybe not. There is always cultures, and it's very often hard to tell, are you in an age right now where you are appreciating this technology, where you, you're hungry for it, you would love to introduce and you do whatever you can, or you live in a time where you feel these innovations just create too much trouble, so let's stay away from them and they will die out, right? So there's no entrepreneur can can survive. There was this, I don't know who, who said it initially, you don't want to be as an entrepreneur somewhere where you're tolerated, you want to be somewhere where you're celebrated. And mm. if it's just tolerated, then these things will never take off and your business won't mm. go anywhere mm. because you need an amazing amount of support, basically this wave that comes into the, to the harbor and supports you. Yeah. Um, when, we, when you look at influences, how society changed over time, in order to be more more open to this, or maybe not, for good reasons, where are these trigger points? Do you feel religion is a big impact? Do you feel it is it is something that that is more random? What can be what can be used to predict if we did say the next fifty years or the next one hundred years will be more or less open? It's almost impossible to predict uh, fifty years ahead. Uh, I, I have studied the history of futurism, 
and yeah. uh, <laughs> you, you can. <laughs> that's an oxymoron, is it? Well, no, it's 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 actually it's 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 virtually a, it's virtually a discipline. I wrote uh, I've I've written at least three or four essays about about futurists and futurism and yeah. and the the specialist consultants who uh, call themselves um, not necessarily futurists, but but they are they investigate scenarios so the the real futurists are not the people who are quoted in the popular press and saying in 25 years we will all do this or do that but they're they're people who advise uh corporations on the on possibilities for the future you know one of them being a a pandemic for example that was very often mentioned the the problem with that kind of futurism though is that that while quite a few people predicted a a global pandemic they really didn't anticipate the specific features that have made covid-19 uh, such a such a tragic event uh, that is the the spread by asymptomatic people, for example. Uh, they now I looked back at the people who who were saying, "Watch out, the uh, a pandemic is coming," and they, uh, for example, they predicted that the United States would do very well, but uh, third world countries would would really bear the brunt of it, and. To some extent, that is true. That when you read about the the uh, the rates of infection in India and Brazil, but there are other countries in the developing world that have had relatively low rates, and, and there are so many surprises in the nature of the virus and how it spreads. You remember, in the early days, people were underestimating the uh, aerosol factor, and they were fixating on on surfaces so even now if you return a library book in my community uh it will it will stay in a special place for disinfection for for a couple of days before it goes back on the shelf even though there is no evidence of anybody anywhere uh getting a a case of uh coronavirus from from a library book but it, it's it's something that has this this uh, this this symbolic uh, symbolic value. So the, the, what what happens is that even though people may may predict some very important features, what happens is that the prediction is just partial. When you look more closely, there were other things that they didn't predict that really affect the outcome and that that make the really reduce the value of the prediction. One of the things you mentioned in your books is the role of information overload. So we, we have that crazy amount of information that we can access in, within a heartbeat's time. But it, it didn't, at least until now, when we, when we say the timeline was somewhere in the 90s when the internet really took off. But we mm -hmm. always, that the books, books before that, the printing press, they were all devices that gave us access to more information. Why don't we see that impact on productivity growth in a positive way from this information overload that we especially enjoy in the last 30 years? Well, there, there are a couple of sides to that, that question. One is that historians who have looked at the 
uh, fear of information overload have found instances that go back at least to the 18th century, and you can you can find some examples in the 17th century. There are so many books, it's impossible to know all of it, it's impossible to read them all. And then in the 19th century, I discovered that at the, at the peak of popular education in Europe, uh, when the school systems were being uh, built out, when more and more students were pursuing uh, secondary school and university studies, uh, when the number of printed books was multiplying, new university programs were starting, uh, people were really concerned that, that everybody was turning into bookworms and that they were, uh, that, for example, that they were ruining their eyes. So uh, one of the lasting results of that was the architecture of many schoolrooms with, with tall windows. And that was the result of studies that I related in my, uh, in my chapter in, uh, in Our Own Devices. On, um, on, on eyeglasses, how uh, leading ophthalmologists were so concerned that students were, were weakening their eyes by, by, uh, by reading too much. Um, so the kind of uh, overload of the number of publications has to be qualified in some ways. And one way to qualify that is to say that the consequence of that in part has been the uh, the development of of increasing specialization. So there was always there were always more books, for example, on the on the French Revolution and and source materials than any one person would be able to uh, to master. Uh, but the way that academia grew was that that there were other people then who started to study the uh, revolution of uh, revolutions of 1830 which I did for my dissertation and other people who study the revolutions of 1848 and the Paris Commune so uh, and then there were all kinds of methodological uh, new disciplines there was uh, women's studies uh, 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 African-American studies, these overlapped with, with existing fields. So what, what I think has, happens in academia from what I've seen is that as knowledge grows, uh, specialties also develop. And, and so there, there may even be an iron law that everybody's professional fate in science and scholarship depends on about 50 colleagues. There are about 50 people, no matter how many um, no matter no matter how much higher education goes, there are 50 people who have something like your specialty, uh, 50 people who are possible reviewers for your your book, 50 people who might be writing letters to your dean about whether you are the most qualified person uh, for this job or to somebody else's dean if you're if you're applying for another job. So I I, I think that although there is this proliferation of knowledge you could measure it by the number of books in the library of congress or the number of of you know terabytes that that are available on in in various texts on the web uh, there is also an adaptation in society that that actually uh, blunts this effect 
when except you, by the way, except for people yeah. like me who try to try to get into, yeah. <laughs> into too many things. Yeah, like in, in yeah, like in AGI. I, this is maybe the argument where we won't see an, an artificial general intelligence anytime soon because it's just so much information. But I like the way you put this. So if we feel we have to go into a stronger specialization, which I think pretty much everyone agrees right now. There's very few contrarians who say that's not the case. We, we change our economy in becoming more creative and more specialized, but we work together easier because the collaboration has gotten easier. We can do this worldwide. This in turn will lead to more information overload because we can afford more information or because we need it, right? Because each field kind of produces, produces their own body of knowledge. Yes. And yes. it needs and, to be ignored yeah. by everyone else yes. in order to make uh, sense. Yes. And there are also institutions for dealing with it. For example, uh, there, are, uh, there, there, are, there are many more uh, meta-analyses of, of research being published. And yeah. there is also uh, text and data mining. And, and one of the big uh, issues is, is like the copyright status of, of, uh, of databases. Do you, do you have the right commercially to mine them or is that, is that, a, uh, is that a, separate, a separate right? So, so the, uh, the proliferation of information brings with it all kinds of social and institutional and legal uh, issues and, and consequences, but we have managed through all of these to, um, to, to, to keep this explosion under control. Yeah, I guess the modern equivalent of this is, instead of reading a book, you read the headline of an abstract that talks about the book on Twitter. So I yeah, mean, it yeah. was it, it was definitely, and you know, one one it's a sentence that sticks with yes. you, but you can keep thousands of people you can maybe remember if you have a good memory i don't a few thousand of such annotations so you know what this person stands for right this is yeah, maybe yeah, what, what, yeah. what we have which is quite a skill yeah. right it's, yeah. it's great because when you need that person you can reach out to that person or research more yes well i have i have i have a, a personal database of of many many gigabytes consisting of downloaded articles to which i assign my own metadata and uh, I will very often, I, I can't read more than a small fraction of the books that I see reviewed and look interesting, but I will make a note for future times when I might be writing about this topic that, you know, here was a book that appeared in you know, 2016 uh, that was well-reviewed and is a, is a good introduction to this subject. So I, I can't read these books as they're appearing, but I can get an overview of what's out there. And so when it comes time for me to write about it, I can, um, I can, uh, uh, I know where to look. And this is a skill that I developed as a science editor. As a science editor, I had to follow a, a lot of research in, in many fields when I was the only science editor. And so I learned how to read the literature in a certain way to identify the personalities who seem most promising as book authors who are not necessarily always the most acclaimed people as researchers. Some of them were, but very often they were people who were not famous for original contributions, but had a very elegant and original way of, of looking at things. Yeah, one of the 
people you wrote about, I guess you admire him too, is Richard Feynman, um, one of the most um, gifted scientists um, that we've ever had. When you look at Richard Feynman and his genius, what do you think he would do today? What would he tell us today if he would be alive? Oh, that's, that's a challenging question. I published Feynman's last scientific book, QED, and I was able to do that because I had a very primitive but effective uh, intelligence service in the form of subscribing to the printed announcements of lectures at colleges and universities around the United States. And so I saw a UCLA bulletin, again, delivered in the U.S. mail before the web, that Richard Feynman was going to be giving a series of lectures. And I knew that Feynman's regular publisher was Norton. Uh, but I thought, well, and, and also that the University of California Press might be the publisher, which often happens when people have given uh, a series of lectures. But I thought it couldn't hurt for me to, uh, to ask. And so I got in touch with, not with Feynman directly, but with the, the dean who uh, sponsored this new endowed lecture series. And what he told me was that uh, the lectures existed only as videos uh, and that the book was, uh, that it was available. Uh, he didn't mention this, but uh, Norton uh, was not able to work with the transcript of the videos and neither, I learned later, was the University of California Press. So the question is, how do you uh, edit? Uh, edit? How do you edit Feynman? You you really needed somebody who could uh, who could work with him. Uh, but but how do you how do you find someone? And it turns out there there was an absolutely obvious choice because the son of Feynman's collaborator on the Feynman lectures in physics, the the one who edited them. Uh, was uh, was also a, a friend of Feynman's. And so he was a perfect person to work with Feynman and to turn the video lectures into a, a book. And the book sold 500,000 copies. So when that happened, I had kind of, I had mixed feelings. I was very happy that we got the book and that it did so well. But I also realized that I was not going to get uh, any more books from Feynman because uh, sadly Feynman was was uh, was was dead by the time the book appeared. That was his last scientific book, and I think that was a turning point for me in in 1986, five years before I left publishing. That said, well, I've done what I set out to do. I always wanted to publish Feynman, and now it's time for me to turn to something else and 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 turn to my own. Uh, my own work. Now, as far as what, what Feynman would say, um, uh, I, I think Feynman had uh, such an elegant way of, of looking at things that, that unfortunately, in order for somebody to say what Feynman would have said, they would have to be uh, almost another Feynman. And we, we, we don't have anyone, we don't have anyone like that now, but he had I think he had a, a, a really um, this, this wonderful, uh, wonderful 
direct intuition about things that that very few other other people have had. Yeah. One of the things we seem to have abandoned, and you wrote about those plenty, are the heroic projects, like the Panama Canal, mm -hmm. the Suez Canal, yes. um, the Orion spacecraft, yes. which few, very few people know about, the just going to the moon, Sputnik, yes. all these things that seem to be common sense in certain time periods, 60s, 30s, and then mm -hmm. in the 1900s. Will we ever have them back? Or do we have them? We just, our eyes are not open to them. That's something I've thought about a lot. A friend of mine, uh, Frank Davidson, was the president of something called the Macro Engineering Society. And he was a backer of uh, uh, and student of big projects. His brother, uh, whom I met in Paris, was the lawyer for the Channel Tunnel uh, project. So the Channel Tunnel may have been the last of the heroic uh, infrastructure uh, uh, projects of that, of that kind. And of course, financing is a huge part of it. A number of things I think are involved in that. And, and the first is that so many of these projects were undertaken without realizing how difficult they were going to be. And when I was at the Institute for Advanced Study, I knew a, uh, I knew a, uh, a great economist who, uh, Albert Hirschman, who had a phrase uh, called the, the, uh, the, the hiding hand, not the invisible hand, but the hiding hand. By, by the hiding hand, he meant that if people knew how hard many enterprises were going to be, they wouldn't have started. Yeah. But because they were ignorant, uh, they went ahead and they found the means to realize what they were they were doing. That this was something like what happened with the Panama Canal, for which I uh, I, I wrote a piece for the the NEH uh, NEH magazine. Uh, so once it gets started, then then human resourcefulness steps in but sometimes it doesn't the first panama canal company failed so you you really almost needed one company to fail for for somebody else to to take that up so i think that one of the things that's happened maybe is that there's a different attitude and people are now uh much more rational about their calculations that that so many of those things required a certain kind of of romanticism that uh, maybe as a result of technology and the ability to project costs more accurately, uh, we, we are not able to, uh, to delude ourselves into, into big things that possibly could turn out to be extremely productive. Uh, there is but also aren't these pro projects typically long-term productive? Like the short-term, maybe they, they're a nightmare, right? Like the channel uh, project. But uh, in the long-term, are, are there so many that we maybe don't remember that are not productive? They all seem crazy productive to me. Well, we, of course, we, we forget about the ones that didn't work out. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote a, uh, a review of a book called The Shock of the Old about the prevalence of old technologies by a British military historian named David Edgerton. And one of the things I pointed out was the number of fundamental inventions that would seem to be about to transform life, for example, uh, example, high temperature superconductivity, 
was going to revolutionize power transmission. I remember that from the late 80s. And I was at a physics meeting where that was announced and everybody was was really uh, over the moon about the, the, the possibilities. And yet th- it turned out that there were there were lots of technical problems. So, so far, who knows, in the future, they may be realized, but, but so far, they haven't done what people expected. Magnetic levitation trains, the, the, you know, the latest trains that we've seen are really on the conventional uh, flanged, you know, flanged wheel on steel rail. Now, incrementally, we have much better alloys for the wheels. We have all kinds of improvements in the rails. We have sensors that will detect uh, failing rails. At one point, you needed track walkers. The, the American railroads had, had hundreds, maybe thousands of men who walked along every, every yard of track and inspected it visually. Uh, and then there were uh, cars that came along, special rail cars with measuring instruments that could, that could do that electronically so we've 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 automated a lot and yet the basic principle of the flanged wheel on the steel rail has has remained the same because the more radical things really were not able to compete with it you wrote about the other extreme maybe it's not really an extreme quite a bit it's this american pragmatism it's this this forward-looking, self-fulfilling, positive prophecy. It's this almost, I kind of trace it back sometimes to the Old Testament, but it's something that you know the New Testament has as well. There's a reason we had the Mayflower and the reason we, we, we had the New Haven mm-hmm. when the first settlers came mm-hmm. over. Is that something where you feel we've, we've lost that a little bit since we divided ourselves from religion even more than it was 100 years ago? Or do you feel we're still... Have you seen this as a core value that that really makes America stand out? Well, I think uh, I think pragmatism is still a, a a big feature of of American life, although it has been eroded so, somewhat by the the uh, I think to, to some extent artificial polarization that we have. I say artificial polarization because if we had a multi-party system. Uh, there would not be the same level of of, of acrimony. The, the, the multi-party system plus the primaries gives a disproportionate weight to people who are who are the most passionate uh, on each side. And so it, it sometimes results in outcomes that really go against what the majority uh, what, what the majority believe. Uh, in uh, European systems, there are other problems. There are problems forming coalitions. So I'm not saying it's utopian, but the advantage is that that you you don't get the same degree of extreme polarization. You, you certainly have have some. And one of the ironies uh, now we're coming to social unintended consequences is that that the primary elections, which were supported by progressives as a way to bring power to the people away from party bosses, uh, have actually given party to the pe- power to the people, but, but very often to the people who are most uh, passionate and, and extreme in their views. And, and so uh, it's, it's unlikely, for example, that in the absence of, of, uh, of, of primaries, um, uh, you know that Donald Trump would have been elected elected president, or that that he would have 
such such strong support as as he has now. Uh, but as long as there are so many people who passionately believe in a, in a candidate, uh, it is very, very hard uh, for people to oppose them because primary has become a verb that, that, that people are threatened with being primary. So to me, that's a really good illustration of how a well-intentioned reform in the long run can turn against the very people who uh, originally proposed it. Yeah, I mean, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah, yeah. And I grew up in, in Eastern Germany, and I feel from, that's what I learned from my parents who really believed in the socialist utopia, is that they had a lot of positive intentions, and they, they kind of were true believers all the way to the end. I, you know, they, they kind of still ah. are to an extent. And it is something that was clearly not going to work economically at least, you could see that in the early 70s. And it was only a small part of the population that was still hanging on to this. And we saw this in the late 80s when suddenly in a small country of 17 million, 13 million were on the street, like just like that. Nobody today, tomorrow 13 million are on the street and let's, let's change this, right? So there is this, this, this odd balancing between, and I think the socialism experiment showed us this really nicely, which let's give them the credit and, and the, the benefit of the doubt that this is a positive intention of a utopia. But some of this utopia doesn't arrive and it very quickly turned into a nightmare. Mm-hmm. This balancing out, and I think we all have this, right? We say someone says something that has seems like a positive intention, but do we know if this is the real intention? We do not, mm-hmm. right? So we, mm-hmm. we need to take people, not just at their word, but at their actions over time, and these yeah. things need to play out. And yeah. I feel the, the extre- extremism we see in the US is maybe good because it, it shows us all the possible scenarios on the sides and usually we, we get scared and we come back to the middle. That doesn't really happen in Europe so much. You, they, their system is more based on not having a very open discussion of, of yeah. coming together yeah. quicker. Yeah. But then it, it's leaving and alienating a big parts of society that never have a say, they, they never get their prime, their, their moment in prime light, which yeah. happens in the US, right? Yeah. We, we go crazy before the elections and then six months later we forget about yeah. it. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. I, I agree completely. I just I was just reading in uh, Financial Times about Wirecard and the the crisis of the uh, the the, uh, the German you know the German government's involvement in it. So so there are there are some Americans think of Europe as a as a kind of utopia of of rational people who are you know, totally honest and 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 transparent and uh and and to me that's just a mirage what i have been studying uh i'm i'm in the i'm beginning to write a uh, an essay about this is the history of five year plans uh and uh, that's a good one yeah. i i haven't studied i haven't studied that in the in the gdr so far uh but the 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 reason was that china has just announced its 14th five year plan but the five year plans have have been a little less popular as such. But one of the interesting, there were two interesting things that I found about five-year plans so far. One is that the five-year plan after the Second World War was actually adopted not only by France and and other Western nations, but by, by many American corporations. So it was one of those cases in which a, uh, a communist, uh, communist innovation 
helped take over uh, for at least for a time uh, uh, capitalism. But there was another thing too, and that is that that one of the great anti-communist books of all times was Friedrich Hayek's uh, The Road to Serfdom. And some people might think that The Road to Serfdom is about the gulag, about the confiscation of property, suppression of, of liberties, and Hayek certainly uh, dwells on those things. But the interesting thing was that his attack was really on planning and the idea of a planned society and a planned economy, something that he found also in, in fascist countries. And th the point that Hayek was making was that the uh, chaos and uncertainty of a liberal society was really necessary because no planner could really foresee all of the complications that arise in reality. And therefore, it is better that enterprises and, and maybe people should fail than, a, uh, than, than a, a government that tries to think of itself as all wise should, should try to plan everything, which he argued was what led to tyranny. And he had a wonderful phrase for that. He said that the, 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 ultimate, the ultimate backing of... Uh, of of a of, of capitalism of a liberal society is the bailiff. The ultimate backing of communism is the hangman. Yeah. Uh, so so it was a. It, but on the other hand, there was a one of the reasons he wrote that was in the 1930s there was tremendous prestige in planning, and a view of many uh, idealistic young people in America and elsewhere, that in the midst of this terrible unemployment in Western countries, the Soviets, through their five-year plans, were really getting things right. They, nobody, was, nobody was unemployed, businesses were not failing, everything was allocated, uh, everything was, uh, was fair, and, uh, and so forth. And I could see how to somebody confronted with the chaos of capitalism during the 30s that was that was so appealing and many of these people of course later uh uh in the in the 1950s uh turned against communism there was that famous book the god that failed but the the appeal uh i think was was based on a on a, it was based on a, on a flawed perception, but in a way, it was correct in the sense that there was no unemployment, that, that people might have to accept the job that was given them, but that, that, uh, that you know, jobs could always be created uh, to keep people from being classified as, as, as unemployed. Uh, I never, I actually, I, I visited East Berlin once when I was a uh, a day uh, day student in uh, in Heidelberg in the uh, in 1968-69. We we had a uh, we, there was a conference there, and so I I, I was able to you know I, I crossed over at Checkpoint Charlie and changed some money and visited a few a few museums, but it seemed to be the the uh, it it was a it was a weird Berlin there was it was a kind of weird weird society because everybody looked so um, they were they were not 
their their body language was different. They were they were just kind of going as though they were going to some appointment. It wasn't it wasn't what this kind of street traffic that you would see in in uh, in West Berlin. And uh, and I've always I've always wondered whether that was just Berlin or whether my presence as an obvious uh, American or or West you know, non non GDR citizen was was what made people uh, uh, avoid me. But it it was uh, it was an interesting experience. Well, they they say communism robs you of your personality because you become this cock in the machine. You're not made in the image of God, you're made in the image of man. And what that means is really this, this shrinking down to this is your, your position. And it's being defined not by God, but by someone who basically puts you there, right? So it's, it's not even your parents, it's typically part of this bureaucracy that was built in these communist countries. And that you don't have any unalienable rights, they don't exist. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, you, you kind of avoid any communication, you avoid any confrontation, you avoid mm. anything that isn't efficient, so to speak. Obviously, that appeals to Germans, right? So they love this. And so the, the efficiency idea that you can't be more efficient when you plan, I think that's a given. It is true, right? It's this trial and error, this constant producing stuff in excess and doing it in, in thousands of ways that are wrong seems ridiculous. And it kind of is, but only in a five-year perspective or in a one-year perspective, whatever their short time frame is, then planning and executing on a good plan is way better. It's like a company, right? Once you have your product and your market fit, you're good to go. But then five years later, things have changed or six yeah. months later, yeah, yeah, you need yeah, to readjust. Yeah. And then yeah. that's when you get killed all the time. Yeah. And every company learns this sooner or later that they need to readjust. And these countries, for some reason, didn't learn it because they that philosophy, a strange philosophy that was very frozen in place on top of this. So they could never recover mm -hmm. from it. Yeah. Yeah. And China has a different way and has found a different way, amazingly, right? And I, I attribute this, and I'm, I'm curious on your thoughts, the, the rise of China and especially the economic rise, maybe it's a bit like the Soviet Union. We don't see what actually is going on in China. That's possible. I mean, I went to China. I'm mm -hmm. not sure I found much out. It mm -hmm. kind of looks like anywhere else in Asia, mm -hmm. to be honest. But it it probably exists because the U.S. is less competitive. We don't have this, we don't form ourselves against something else. We, we kind of took ourselves out of the competition. We are like this, this extreme marathon runner who says, okay, I won all the contests and I'm done. I retire. And I feel like we are slowly coming out of retirement now. Yeah, that, I, I think that, that China is... Um, is it's really unique in, in a lot of ways. For example, uh, the, the Soviet Union was very proud of its multinational composition. And even though the, the, the great Russians dominated it, uh, there was room for Ukrainians like Khrushchev. There was room for people from, from Central Asia. Uh, the, the, one of the reasons for the breakup of the Soviet Union was that, that the constituent republics had the right to declare independence. So it was a, it was a, uh, it, it, it was in, it was in principle an extremely democratic uh, democratic constitution, but the the difference I think is that that uh, China has become a, a a superpower with with minimal uh, import of of uh, of foreign talent except for ethnic Chinese who have been who have been educated uh, elsewhere, and it is. 
it is uh, really uh, very, very openly devoted to um, to uh, creating one uh, a single Chinese identity, uh, the, the the kind of an, an opposite of any kind of, of federalism or, uh, or or diversity, and that has a lot of positive features for China because I think that that uh, people. Uh, especially given the the ruthless exploitation of of China and oppression of China in the 19th and and 20th centuries, people have a have a well grounded uh, you know, reason to uh, to assert uh, assert national pride. Except you can you can take any good thing too far. Uh, but the other really interesting thing about China is the way in which uh, it can combine Marxist-Leninist orthodoxy with a flourishing but, uh, but, but uh, tamed and supervised private sector. Uh, so it's given up that kind of central planning of the Soviet five-year plans. The new five-year plan is really, it, even the Chinese word has changed. I, I read it's more like guidelines. It's really no longer... Uh, we're allocating so much for this and so much for that. It's like, uh, here is here is what we really want to do as a society. Um, so it it has been it has been incredibly incredibly successful, and I'm not one to predict anything about its future. However, I should say on a personal note that for my last book, the efficiency paradox, the only translation we have sold so far is into Chinese, and it's just appeared in Shanghai. And it it was actually a uh, it was it was a it was a decent a decent amount. So I have uh, I I have a, a lot of positive uh, things to say about about uh, about China based on my own uh, own uh, own experience. On the other hand, I'm wondering how long China can continue its rise. For example, if even members of the elite outside the party don't have access to major Western publications. I was at a dinner uh, at, a, uh, at, a, at a club in New York, and uh, my host was a professor of, uh, of social science, and his guest was one of the leading, uh, the, the leading uh, social scientists of China. And this man said that that in China, even he, uh, a professor at a major university, does not have access to the New York Times, for example. So how can a country uh, hope to uh, to dominate if even members of its own elite are not really free to examine uh, ideas from outside? Yeah, uh, and I don't know how they're it, it going won't. to deal with that. It, it won't almost by definition, but it it takes a long time, right? To this until this materializes this weakness. Once you move away from the truth, and I think China has been doing this for quite some time, and you you eventually pay a price that might be another ten, twenty, thirty years. But yeah. the day is coming, and there's a bunch of books. Peter Zian writes about that. Here's a very interesting thesis from a geopolitical standpoint: what will happen to, you know, the the, the war mm -hmm. on. It doesn't have to be an, an, a hot war, but the, the conflict of the big geopolitical powers in the next mm. 20 years. Mm. One thing I wanted to ask you going into a slightly different topic. A lot of people say that 
technology itself has like an agenda. So it, it seems to as much change us as we appreciate these new innovations. There's people sometimes describe it, not scientific, describe this to say an alien technology yeah, that yeah, wants to yeah. wants us to build spare parts. It, it, as someone gave us all this sudden consciousness, we made all these mm. big developments, mm. relatively mm. small time frame. Mm. And we have all these, these, it seems to go some places. We can say, well, it's just randomness, but maybe technology is leading us somewhere. Have you ever had this mm. impression? I, I don't favor that view. Uh, I, and the reason I don't is that, that it, doesn't look at all the directions technology could have gone in. In other words, it, it, things look inevitable, but actually they're the result of choices that people, uh, powerful people, uh, corporate leaders, government leaders make in which technology to pursue, which technology uh, uh, not to pursue. So there wasn't in the, for example, the um, the first five year plan was in the UK in the 1880s, and it was for the construction of more battleships to meet the challenge of the rise of German naval power. Well, you could say that the the, the battleships had a had a momentum that the, the technology of warfare was. Uh, was evolving by its own logic and, and forcing people to to uh, to uh, to follow. But you could also say that this was a cultural thing based on the attitudes of the people who were running Germany, the people who were running Britain, and that the technology could have developed along totally different lines. You you the, another world would would be possible where you didn't have naval rivalries, where you you had uh, much more international. Uh, cooperation where where the the money could have been invested in in other things so it, it's true that in in some areas for example in uh, in uh, in the development of, of, of microcomputers uh, there was a kind of built-in technological agenda of, of miniaturization and it's it's re it's really been absolutely amazing when you consider the um, the power, the computing power of the iPhone that I'm using now for this interview, you would not have had anything like that in a Cray supercomputer of the 1980s, which needed its own uh, you know, water, water cooling supply. If, you, if people are talking about inflation, but this is a, a kind of amazing negative inflation, there wouldn't have been any way to make a an iPhone at any price in the in the 1980s. So maybe we are we are just taking too much for granted the the miracles of of our own time. I personally am am very very conscious of this because I lived through that period when uh, when the uh, when when uh, people were were boasting about these these supercomputers and and uh, and I I think. Uh, that it it's, people should really uh, be much more grateful for what they what they have, uh, and uh, and and in some ways they could say, well, people think of income as being diminishing, but in in some ways, if you think of all the benefits that you can get from a smartphone, 
uh, our our income has been increasing. For example, I uh, I often will use a, a chess program called Stockfish uh, to practice, and Stockfish is really is is about as strong as any grandmaster in the world. And here I'm able to use it free. I don't even have to use the web. It, it all the calculations are done. On, on, on my iPhone, uh, and there are other chess programs, and there are programs that will that will that will tutor you. So even though I lose every game, of course, uh, it's it's a uh, it's a challenge for me to see how long I can last. Uh, I, I've never been able to get it to a draw, and I don't think I'll, I ever will be able. But I, I it, it amuses me to see how I can construct the most uh, apparently impregnable defensive structures and the program has a kind of can opener that can 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 find a weakness there there is always some some little gap there that it knows how to uh, how to exploit and even though i'm losing it's a tremendously amusing thing for me to see how this machine is outsmarting me chess is a very good example when the first battles between ai and the grandmasters came around it was described, and it's depending on the algorithm, but eventually the researchers came up with algorithms where other chess players would look at it and say, oh, well, there's an intuition. This isn't just some, we calculate all the odds. And that's especially now true for AlphaGo. They feel like this machine has an intuition. It, it kind of knows, it, it without calculating all the different odds, which was initially the strategy, it kind of knows what's happening. Do you feel the same when you when you play chess yourself? Would you observe the same thing now? And will are you worried about this? What machines will what will soon will happen? Right, machines will for uh -huh. almost all the problems we can think of, there will be the better solution. Yeah, there will yeah. still be stuff left yeah. for us. But yeah, well, that, that, yeah I've thought of that. I've of. thought of yes. I, yeah, I've thought I've thought of that quite a bit. And I should say that that uh, that sometimes. Um, like I, I have seen uh, magic acts, uh, uh, acts called cold reading, where the magician uh, appears to know things about the spectator that clearly involve mind reading. I saw when I was uh, at TED, the last time I was at TED, there was one of these mentalists and he, he, found out things about somebody in the audience that I nobody there could understand how he was able to to know that nobody and yet he did not claim to have magical powers and there is undoubtedly a, a rational explanation for his his technique so to me uh, this effect uh, of course who can say whether or not it's real but it it could be that the programs can create a, a convincing illusion of intuition, which is not the same as having as having real uh, real intuition. Uh, and one of the ways that you could sometimes see this is when uh, when an AI program makes a mistake, and it makes a mistake that a person would never have made. For example, when uh, when the the uh, the IBM um, Watson program uh, was on Jeopardy, uh, it, you know how that works by by multiple 
not the way a human being would would uh, would approach a problem, but there are there are multiple algorithms that run in parallel and that take a vote, just as in airplanes uh, like Airbus, there are multiple guidance systems with different hardware programmed differently with different programming languages that vote so that it's inevitable that there's a glitch in one program or the other. But it is almost uh, impossible that the same glitch will occur simultaneously in three or four different programs at, at, at the same at the same point. Boeing so, must have used a different system. Well, that's I'm that's another yeah, that's another another uh, question. So they, they did use a different system actually. So uh, so the the uh, uh, the one of the questions though about the location of airports in Canada was something that you could kind of know by by minimal geographic knowledge and common sense. It was one of the easiest questions. And yet uh, Watson, Watson failed that one and, and succeeded with its massive databases with more, with more, uh, with more, with more complicated ones. So, uh, so I, have, I am still in the, in the skeptical category about certain, certain things about, about AI, although uh, I, I don't doubt that there are there are many others that will really astound us, but I don't think we should believe that just because it does some things astoundingly well, that it can necessarily do everything uh, astoundingly well. Yeah, well, this uh, that famous quip someone said: "Whenever we can't explain something, we think it's magic or it's God." That seems to be the only things that fit that fit in there, mm. and we 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 certainly over attribute this all the time. But the the funny part with all this AI is we don't really know why it works. I mean, the, the original model nobody really knows why it works. So it's it's we we know there's statistics involved, mm. but none none of the research researchers knows, and so the model can't talk to us. Nobody can nobody mm. can say okay, yeah, this yeah, is why it works. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, this body that's, of, of why answers, right? Because yeah. nowadays we can go to a human and more or less the human will be pressed to come up with a why answer or you yeah. will be able to find your research, right? Yes, yes. Or you, you will, will don't get the human recognition. Yeah. Yeah. For machines, it will never be a problem. And then when we go back to intentions, right, where we say, okay, we believe you, you have a good intention, so I believe you, mm -hmm. um, or bad intention, but I still, still think it will work out. With machines, we can never do this, right? They just... Mm -hmm. <laughs> They, they kind of plot, plot these things out. We take it and we, we're happy about it. But that's great. But we can never double check the intentions or the why problems. Isn't that worrisome? Yeah. Well, I think that, that, um, that part of machine learning is, is this, um, this uh, like uh, pattern, pattern matching through, through repeated, uh, repeated, uh, repeated efforts. And it, it, I think it would be hard, for example, for a machine and an AI that was learning how to distinguish dogs, dogs from cats to explain uh, what, what is there that is like diagnostic for being a, a, a cat rather than a dog. Uh, it, it, it just has, has kind of uh, created some, some rules for dogginess and, and, and cattiness and they're, they're they're extremely uh, they they work extremely well. Now, what what the 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 big issue, of course, is that the Western idea of science, as you know, is really one that that is based on transparency and it's based on 
on uh, on on the ability to explain just just how something works. Now there there have been exceptions. For example, Newton's breakthrough uh, in in the theory of, of of gravity was that he abandoned these metaphysical ideas about what was happening, and he he said, you know, look, he he said, we I don't make hypotheses. That is, I don't construct these grand schemes that other philosophers have done. But I can tell you that that bodies uh, obey these laws and the laws can be expressed mathematically and that's it. We can't. So, <laughs> excuse me. So, so in a lot of ways, uh, Newton's revolution was a kind of modesty and in, in not trying to understand uh, ultimate, ultimate causes. And, uh, and maybe sometimes AI is, is working like that. Yeah, so it's more modest. That's interesting. <laughs> I never looked at it that way. That's very interesting. A lot of people, I don't know if you ever looked into this, this is very specific. The principles of flight are apparently not fully understood. Yes, we know there's a certain pressure system, but there seem to be a lot of open questions that many physicists don't have an answer for. I don't actually, I, I saw that. That's an article I saw, mm -hmm. and I'm like, whoa, that's 100 years later. I'd like to reference to that, and it reminds me of the, of the uh, excuse me, I, I have a slightly sore throat. <laughs> it reminds me of, of what I once read. I was, um, I was reading about friction and how long it took for physicists to understand friction. And it was also, um, uh, there, there were many other uh, familiar things in everyday life that were understood only long after people were able to calculate the the uh, the, the movement of the planets and the and the uh, and 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 galaxies that 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 some very obvious everyday things turn out to be extremely difficult to explain when you when you look at them in detail. And I've read that about about uh, about flight, so I'm interested in the in a uh, in a reference to that but but it, every once in a while we read about other things that have been familiar generally accepted and in the textbooks and then somebody uh does some more experimental work and he says hey wait a minute this is not what we were what we were planning and that's one of the things i really love about science that it is always open to these surprises and that there are so many opportunities for uh, creative researchers to challenge even ideas that were once apparently so solid. I think that's, that is the, the, the best kind of unintended consequences. But I, can, I, I should also mention something that I read about, uh, about scientific research that, that the, the researcher, for example, in the studies of, uh, of uh, subatomic particles in, in accelerators, the, the researcher is hoping for, not for confirmation of an existing theory, but for some big surprise. But the people who fund the research want the research to, to, to prove something. So there is a, yeah. there is a tension between the, uh, the, the sponsor and the investigator. Yeah, that's really interesting because a lot of current science, you basically have to exactly predict what you're doing and then it's funded in milestones. And yep. then if it doesn't go along, 
you're in trouble because the next milestone won't come around because yes. you didn't find what you were looking for. And you can't yes. actually tell people, well, I'm just going to play around with this collider for a year and see what happens, which is probably the better approach yeah, in yeah. many instances yeah. if we have well, these I'll, open problems. Exactly. When I was a, an, a science editor, I w spoke with a, uh, uh, a, a geophysicist at a major Western university. And he had written something that I thought would be the basis of a really, really good book. And he, he agreed he would like to work on this, but he said that he wasn't able to because he had to think of his graduate students. So here was somebody who was, I think he was in his 40s, he had tenure, he, he, had, a, he had a major lab. And one of the unintended consequences of the system was that he had been so successful in getting funding for his lab and attracting graduate students and, and postdocs that now he was a, a prisoner of his own success. And so even though somebody in that position might believe that they have really they have really discovered most of what was to be discovered and they reached a point of diminishing returns it is very hard for them to switch uh, this is something that i'm working on now as part of my uh, project on on uh, on time horizons in in everyday life that uh that there is something like a natural rhythm of learning how to do something and then taking it to the highest level you can and then sustaining it at a high plateau for a few years but afterwards there is a fallout it's it's like it's like a mine where you have a mother load and you can keep mining it and mining it and the ore gets lower and lower grade but meanwhile you have this mine and so you're you have to keep crushing the ore and and extracting extracting less less and less from it so it, I think it's become harder for people to break out of that and to shift their interest to uh, a new side of their discipline. But I've spoken with three or four uh, colleagues and friends of mine in academic life in the humanities, as well as the sciences and social sciences, and they all describe experiences like that, that they 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 had an idea they pursued it but then after some time it was time to move on but in moving on you're not going to something entirely new what you're doing is you're taking ideas and concepts that you developed in your previous phase and you're carrying them forward so they they form a kind of new endowment for you in the yeah. in the new phase of your research do you think we will see Maybe if we change some of these patterns or there's some new paradigm coming along, we will see another Cambrian explosion of knowledge in the next 20 to 30 years. Do you, do you feel we are just at this cusp or is it just going to be very similar to what we've seen in the last 50 years? Uh, there is uh, an economic historian that, that I know, Joel Mokir, who was uh, writing about the idea that we have picked the low-hanging fruit of science yeah, exactly. and technology. Yeah. And he said that that with the new tools that we're developing, we can build taller ladders. Yeah. And I really like that metaphor. In other words, we, when, you, when you see the instruments that are available to scientists now, I'm just thinking in, in genetic sequencing and, and how quickly we were able to develop vaccines. So what, what gives me hope is that the instruments that are 
are being uh, developed now will let us answer all kinds of questions that we uh, couldn't have dreamed of answering before. The downside of that, though, is that sometimes, although sometimes the equipment becomes much more democratic and, and the price is lowered, very often at the frontier, uh, you need exponentially more in order to get to the next phase. So the, 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 uh, the, the next uh, super collider is going to be much more expensive than the last one. And, and ultimately you might need a super collider half the size of the, of the solar system to, to, yeah. you know, to study the, the, uh, the next phase. Do you think we need, and we talked about that earlier a little bit, we should come together and kind of have a new Manhattan project. We've, there is these, and maybe those are just the winners. So obviously we have to be careful, but we kind of, we, we're in the business of being, printing trillions of dollars right now. Maybe mm. we should just take a few billion, hundred mm. billion, and throw it at something where we really don't know the outcome, but it's big enough if it works, it's going to change the face of this planet to the mm. better. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I, um, I haven't yet seen any project that I would put in that in that category. Although in principle, I agree with you. I, I, I think we should we should look out for long shots with uh, with with incredible benefits. Uh, but it's, space elevator or it, it fusion, takes, yeah, right? Those yeah, would be candidates. Yeah, this fusion now. Fusion is is a local specialty here at Princeton. I, I know friends yeah. at the plasma physics physics lab. So, so uh, fusion is one of those things, though, that that people have been dismissing for a long time, but that could suddenly could suddenly uh, come to the forefront. And maybe fusion is one of those fields in which we should be putting in which we should put, be putting even more money. Certainly the people at the plasma plasma physics laboratory in Princeton could make a good case for that. They're right down the road for me, by the way. Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Do you get the chance to like hang out with them and see what they are? I have. Yes, I visited there. Yeah, yeah. I I knew. Uh, uh, I know Rush Rush Holt, uh, who was the uh, congressman. He he was a uh, he was a physicist there, and he ran for Congress. His family had been in politics, so uh, so I knew Rush, and uh, I've known I've I've had other other uh, other friends there. They had a uh, wonderful program. Uh, now suspended called science on saturday and they had all kinds of visiting uh, speakers for uh, for high school students mainly but also for you know, members of the community uh, who were talking about their research that's where i heard uh, the the uh, the founder of the watson project speak <coughs> excuse me I think that's all I have, Edward. <laughs> well, uh, thank for... you. I, I've enjoyed this. Uh, really, please send me the references. Me too. Uh, me too. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I, it, was, it was great. You asked, you asked wonderful questions. I wish I had, I wish I had better an answers. But those were the best. Those <laughs> we'll, were the best we'll, I could we'll think of. We'll do it again in two years, and I'm sure you have way more, way more answers than I have questions. Well, we'll, we'll I, I, I'll be looking forward to that. So, thank you. Thank you very, Same very here. much. Same here, Edward. Thanks bye a lot. Bye. Really appreciate it. Bye bye. Bye bye. Take it easy. Bye bye. Thank you.